the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. This show is in a couple of different parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going to court, that's avoiding probate, and as far as elder laws, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, we got a full house today of participants. First, we have my wife, Beth. I'm here. Arlene. Hello there. And Nick. Hi, how are you? Who's on deck first? Who's got a question? If you, I have a question. question. Okay. How about that? I've got a question from Sarah. Dear Mr. Connors, my mom is in a nursing home and receiving Medicaid. She owns a home jointly with her children. Can we sell or rent the home while she is in the nursing home? What happens with the money? Well, technically, uh, uh Assuming mom's name is on the deed, her share of the property jointly, whether it's 50-50 or one-third, one-third, I'm not sure from the, the letter, that share would be subject to nursing home bills. Now, if one of the children lives in the house, we may be able to deed the house to one of the kids, probably in a trust, because we want to save as much in taxes on the sale of the house as possible. One of the missing points about this question is, do the children live in the house? Because if the children live in the house, then we're in pretty good shape either tax-wise or whatever. Assuming that the deed was done more than two years ago and the children live in the house, they would each get $250,000 tax-free from the sale of the house. The problem we might have if the children don't live in the house, then we might have a capital gain because most of our clients who own real estate, they usually have pretty big capital gains. They paid 50000 for the house 30 years ago. It's worth whatever today, a million, two million, even seven hundred dollars or $800,000. And that's subject to capital gain if you don't live in the house. Now, if you live in the house, you get two fifty tax-free off the capital gain. And if mom's husband, if I assume he's not around, from the way the question reads, if mom's husband died owning part of the property, then we would get a stepped-up basis. You wouldn't have to pay tax on his share from his date of death. So it's a little bit of a complicated question. If I knew all the facts, it really wouldn't be that complicated. But if mom sells the house, the house is exempt as an asset for Medicaid purposes if it was mom's residence 
before she went into the nursing home. And if it goes jointly out to the children, it's joint tenants with right of survivorship, we shouldn't have a problem. The problem is if we sell. Part of the house may go to the nursing home. Now, we can try to do certain things. If one of the children uh, live in the house, we can do certain things. And of course, our biggest problem might be taxes, because if the children don't live in the house, we may have to pay capital gains taxes. Now, what do we do? Maybe we start doing a trust agreement, talk to the family. Is it true that the house really was considered to be mom's? You know, it was only put on the uh, the deed for convenience purposes. Maybe we might be able to do a trust agreement. At this point, try to save the house from nursing home bills. A lot depends on whether the children live in the house or not. If the children don't live in the house, the best thing might be to try to keep the house until mom's gone. And then I'm pretty sure we can sell it tax-free, assuming the children didn't uh, put money on the, the house eventually and they're not paying capital gains on their own share. But if you come in, we can talk about it and, and you, you know, we don't want to pay more taxes than we have to pay. If, if there's a way we can avoid paying taxes, that's what we want to do. And we don't want a good part of the house to go to a nursing home or nursing home bills. We've got nothing against nursing homes, but we want to keep the money in the family, let Medicaid pay for the nursing home. All right, so I guess we're going to go to question number two. And Nick, you've got that, and it's kind of a long question, so Yes, good luck. I will summarize it. We have a question here from Nancy. Nancy's mom is 90 years old, and she owns a house with no mortgage. Seven years ago... She had issues and she had trouble paying the taxes. What she did, she added her daughter's name and the son-in-law, her daughter's husband's name, on the deed. And they paid the taxes with the understanding that they will get the money back that they paid in taxes uh, upon the sale of the house. She has now moved out of the house. And her questions are, if the house is sold, would she get one share, one third of the profits? If she rents the house, how would the money be split? And before the house is sold, if she passes, what happens? Um, just to note one thing, no agreement was put in writing. Yeah, which I hate to say this is kind of like a, a classic, I told you so. There should have been a trust agreement saying whatever happened, these all questions could be handled with an agreement. In a lot of cases, it's a lot easier to come to an agreement when you're first starting this out than when the moment of crisis comes about. Does the family agree is what the, the story is on the house? Were their names put on just for security for the taxes? Or do they have a real ownership interest in the house? Obviously, again, we'd like to put the house in a trust. Certainly say in the trust that the daughter and son-in-law who paid the taxes will get their money back without question. Now, no matter what, if mom's name name is on the deed, she can put her share of the house into a trust or put it in the will, I'd rather go in a trust so it doesn't go through probate. So let's say, you know, again, we don't know whether the deed here is, is one-third, 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 half and half. But let's say if it's half and mom has two kids, she could leave her half of the house to the child who's not on the deed if that's what she wanted to do. And that way there'd be some equity in the process. Hopefully everybody can get together, sign an agreement now, and figure out what is the truth and what should be done. As long as mom's alive, we can do something. You know, again, that's where a trust agreement, if we put the house in a trust agreement beginning and say, you know, these children get part of the house, plus they get reimbursed the real estate taxes. And of course, you have to go into whether they get interest on that investment, so to speak, and and when do they get paid and things like that. Same thing, if they rented, um, who would get the rents? Ordinarily, we'd we'd want the rents to go support mom and pay the real estate taxes and the insurance and whatever else. One third of the profits, again, it's the same thing. I assume one-third, then it must have been three equal shares. The family can agree to anything. Hopefully, we can come to an agreement. But if it is one-third, mom can leave her one-third to whomever, can transfer her share of the house into a trust where the, a child who's not on the deed gets a share. 
Maybe if there are two kids and the child who doesn't get a share gets one-third through mom's trust and the other two-thirds goes to the, the daughter and her husband and they get their real estate taxes paid from that share, maybe that's you know not a bad way to come to an agreement. But by putting somebody else's name on a deed, bad things can happen. You go to a closing, the IRS is going to see two-thirds of the house and the deed in, in the name of people who, one, really don't own it, I think, may have to pay taxes on that share of the house. We can probably correct it if we do something before the house is sold. That's why good planning is, is is the way to do things. It's not just put somebody else's name on the deed. And if you go to our seminars, I always give examples of what can happen if something happens to one of the people, you put them on a deed. Putting somebody else's name on a deed is not like putting somebody else's name on a, on a bank account. Something goes wrong, you go to the bank, you take the money out. Something happens, let's say, to your daughter, your son-in-law may own part of this house and may not cooperate with the rest of the family. Best way to go usually is a trust agreement. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of our listeners' calls, and he plays that question for his listeners. Kevin McCullough is on 570 The Mission from Monday to Friday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on 970 The Answer, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock. And he has an extended hour with John Katsimatidis on Wednesdays from 4 to 6. So, Kevin, take it away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, will answer one of your questions about uh, end of life or elder uh, law or estate law. Uh, whatever those issues are in your life, uh, they're the best in, of the best uh, on them across the board. And this week's question comes from Susan. Uh, it says, Dear Mr. Connors, what is the difference between a health care proxy and a living will? I'm confused and I'm hoping that you can clarify. Mike. Well, actually, this is a question that I get all the time. A health care proxy is legally recognized by New York State, and that's a writing witnessed by two people where you appoint somebody to make medical decisions in the event you can't speak for yourself. That's a health care proxy. A living will is usually, it, basically, it's a letter. It, it's not legally recognized as a legally enforceable document. But it's where you state your wishes, usually in the event of a terminal illness. If I'm terminally ill with cancer, I don't want to be resuscitated. I do not want extraordinary measures to prolong my life. Things like that. And that's the uh, the simple difference. But, friends, if, if you've got a situation where you think, well, I want to make sure that I'm properly uh, cared for in either of these uh, circumstances, then what you need to do is you need to have a face-to-face -face with one of the Connors and Sullivan very best uh, staff, 718-238-6500, to make that appointment, 718-238-6500. And uh, if you've got more questions, questions of your own, you can always send those to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Now, he'll answer one question here on Kevin McCullough Radio every week, but he'll answer a whole bunch more on his broadcast uh, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570 The Mission and FM 102.3 and also AM 970 The Answer Sunday mornings at 11. Thanks again, Kevin. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. 
now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. The pro-life movement is winning. One of the signs of progress is the growing mountain of medical evidence that abortion harms women, men, and families. Even researchers who identify themselves as pro-choice are coming to this conclusion and publishing their research. Abortion advocates try to hide and bury this information. But so much of it continues to come out that their efforts to hide it will not succeed much longer. Abortion really destroys itself. The more it continues, the more it reveals itself as an enemy of the human family. Those who advocate abortion say they care about women's health. But if they do, then they will have no honest rationale for ignoring the harm that abortion does. As the mountain of medical evidence against abortion grows, so should our hope that it will end. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Arlene, you're up next. Uh, what's the question you have for? Well, I have a question next? from Sylvie. Her, her question is, she writes, Dear Mr. Connors, can you explain to me why I need a will? My husband died many years ago, and we never did any type of estate planning. I own my own house, and I have some cash in the bank. I have only one daughter. Wouldn't she get everything I own anyway? Well, yeah, the answer to the, that is yes, she would get everything you own anyway. And, and again, I'm assuming you don't have any other children that passed away and grandchildren and things like that. But everybody should have a will. And one, one of the reasons you should have a will in this case is what if something happens to your daughter? Who's going to get the house? And the other thing is if your daughter wants to sell the house quickly, she'll have to be bonded after you're gone or and file an affidavit with court you know, describing who the relatives are. It's a little bit of a court procedure if she wants to sell the house right of way. It's a lot easier if she has a will. The easiest thing is a trust because assuming your daughter doesn't live in the house, mom goes to a nursing home, there may be a lien on the house for nursing home bills. If we have the house in a trust, one daughter, we should protect that house from nursing home bills. So everybody should have a will because there's always odds and ends. It's easy to sell a car. It's easier to do some banking or whatever if you have a will. At the same time, you want to plan things to avoid probate and you put the house in a trust. Later on in the show, we're going to have two interviews, one with uh, our friend from the London Center, Tim Wilson, and he, he spent 30 years around the world in the, in the British Army, including uh, Northern Ireland, Finland. Canada. And he has a, a, a lot of experience over the years. And one of the things he's going to talk about, what happens if we get hit by a nuclear weapon from a terrorist group? So how to react? And it's, it's kind of an interesting interview. I didn't really want to do it, but I, I think it still might be worth the the effort. Well, you never know. You never know what's going to happen. Now, I know my experience is south and north I never, when you were little, did y'all crawl under the desks yeah. or something? Yeah, I never did that. that. Yeah. 
I think my folks just decide, well, if, you know, the schools, well, if we get hit by a bomb, that's it. Yeah. You know, we didn't have cellars. We didn't have anything. Most well, it was very little. The nuns used to, you know, prepare us for a communist takeover that we would have to. Oh, my goodness. You know, st- stand up to the communists for our faith. Bishop <laughs> Fulton Sheen fans. <laughs> yeah. But, Nick, um, give a little bit of a background because our second our second guest today is going to be Robert Spencer president of, of jihad watch but what's your background where did you go where did you go to law school one but before that where did you go to grammar school and so forth i went to grammar school in jordan i i was born and raised i spent the first part of my life in jordan uh background is middle east and christian and i attended a catholic school in, uh, in jordan all my life same school from grammar to high school okay now i know a f- few months ago we had father paul on the show and he was a uh he admired some of Robert Spencer's work, or at least he agreed with it strongly. Do you have any comment on that? Correct. No, I'm very familiar with, with his work. I've actually been uh, watching Mr. Spencer for many years. I've, I haven't read the books, unfortunately, but I've actually watched so many of his lectures, I feel that I've read <laughs> the books. Yeah, well, he, but he's, he, yeah, sorry, he's, he's very sharp, and he, he impressed me as one of a very few people that I've seen in the West who understands the ideology from a perspective as if he spoke the language, which is, you know, understanding one thing that's, that was translated is one thing, and understanding uh, the foundation uh, in, in, in a particular ideology, religion, or, or any, any concept from the perspective of the native speakers, uh, it's very uh, unique. And yeah. I, I haven't seen that many that understand it like he does. So uh, that's how I was, that's just how I was drawn yeah. to his work initially. And he does seem to have a very pessimistic view of the Middle East. So we'll, we'll listen to what he has to say. In the meanwhile, we'll take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. 
Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We've invited back on a guest, Tim Wilson, from the London Center, and we were talking about the Second Amendment in the last uh, program we had together, and and there's some things going on in Virginia. Tim, can you tell us what that is? Yes, certainly, Mike, Um, and thank you for having me on. Virginia has got really interesting because the governor and, and their leadership have uh, been trying and are considering passing laws to effectively ban um, a number of different types of gun, which uh, would make, in particular, the AR-15 style weapons illegal. And uh, there's a revolt against it by the people of Virginia. And even law enforcement is joining in to say, you know, we're not going to enforce this this new law. We're not going to make criminals out of law-abiding citizens. And uh, all sorts of various offers going on there. Um, The uh, Secretary of State uh, uh, for the Commonwealth has turned around and said, well, of course, if that's what the law is, then it must be enforced. And so what's happening? I mean, as I say, there are all sorts of it's basically a popular uprising against the governor and his uh, his plans. Um, and you even have law enforcement offering to deputize every law abiding civilian in, in his jurisdiction, which is a fascinating concept. Yes, it would be, because I guess the deputy's uh, entitled to have a weapon, a firearm. You know, some people AR-15. Can you explain what an AR-15 is? Because I I think that's misunderstood by the public. Indeed. A lot of people think that it stands for assault rifle or army rifle or the like. It was actually, AR actually stands for armor-like rifle, and it was designed in the 1950s for the civilian market. It was then taken up by uh, by the Navy initially in the early 1960s. And um, very, and then adopted gener- more generally as the M16, which is, of course, nowadays uh, has turned into effectively the M4. It has developed over the years, um, but it doesn't stand for assault rifle. It doesn't stand for army rifle. It stands for armor-like rifle, and it was initially developed, as I say, not as a machine gun, not as a, a but a, as a semi-automatic hunting rifle. All right, now I'm going to change the subject. What's the London Centre? What does it do? The London Centre is uh, a group of people that was set up to to basically challenge conventional wisdom. Um, and, and it's a group of people that think um, in a similar manner with a lot of experience in national security, energy, and risk analysis. And basically we do a lot of research so that we try and base future solutions on facts. All right. Now, one of the things I I read, and, and, you know, now people are getting paranoid that we're going to be attacked by terrorists with nuclear weapons. What does one do to survive a nuclear attack? It's 
actually a, a fairly simple set of procedures that will increase your chances of survival. Um, let me just say that obviously the main experience that the world has of all of this is the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. And that if one studies this the way a lot of people have, um, then you come up with some very simple solutions that say in the first few minutes of the attack, um, about 50,000 people died at Hiroshima. Another 100,000, these are very rough figures, but another 100,000 died in the couple of weeks after that, and then another 100,000 over the following weeks. A lot of those deaths could have been avoided. Um, obviously, if you're incinerated, you, you've, you're out of luck. But a lot of the casualties occur further away from ground zero. And if you just know the basic things, everybody that's old enough will remember duck and cover and how even in schools that was being taught. And that is actually the most important thing you can do. The second thing that you can do is to protect your airway um, because a lot of the later on casualties were caused by the inhalation of radioactive dust. And once it's in, in your lungs, uh, you're, you have real problems. So duck and cover, uh, typically for the first 10 minutes after, after all the flashlights of hell go off, and protect your airway as soon as you can. Then stay calm, make your best assessment before acting. And then there's a couple of things called the 7 and 48 hour rules. Because making your, when I talk about making your best assessment, the biggest decision to make is whether to stay or where you are or to go somewhere else. And if you know the 7 and 48 hour rules, it increases again your chances. And the 7 and 48 hour rules are very simple. Uh, after seven hours, 90% of the fallout and 90% of the dust has settled out of the atmosphere. And after 48 hours, 99% of the dust has settled and 99% of the radioactivity has decayed. Um, that doesn't mean that it's not radioactive. Of course, there are centuries worth with some of the uh, elements that are produced by a nuclear explosion or by a dirty bomb. Um, but those rules are generally valid. And as I say, what it means is that if you're going to take cover, uh, where you are, which may be the wisest if you are close to where ground zero was, then you need to stay under cover for at least seven hours and preferably 48 hours before even thinking about moving. And if you do decide to move and get out of the area, which is sensible if possible, then move across the wind, keep it on your cheek or your shoulder. Don't go downwind and don't go upwind. If you go upwind, you're probably heading towards the blast zone. That's not a good idea. And going downwind, the wind will overtake you with any fallout that's coming out of the sky. So those are the five main points. Duck and cover, protect your airway, stay calm, make your best assessment before acting. Remember the 7 and 48 hour rules, 90% and 99%. And when evacuating, move across the wind. Back in the... Uh, early 2000s, when I first arrived in America, I was very concerned about the possibility of a terrorist nuclear bomb. And I looked around and the studies were interesting. In 1986, a panel of experts was got together and produced um, a, a study into the likelihood of a terrorist nuclear event in the USA. And they said that within 10 years, there was a 50% chance of that. Now, they fortunately have been wrong. But if you know anything about statistics, and we're 30 years on from that, it means that the odds are growing. And the world is not a safer place 
There are over 300,000 kilograms of plutonium in the world. There are thousands of tons of uh, highly enriched uranium around. And the chances of somebody bad getting hold of something and doing something with it are not zero. Let's put it like that. So all I was trying to do was not to panic, but to look at what was what should I do in the on to keep myself and my family safe in the event of something happening. And I couldn't find a study, so I uh, uh, a guide at the time. Now there are now a number of good guides on on the internet, but I put together a little booklet with these basic things uh, called Nuclear Survival, and I put it out on the internet. And where can we access that? It will shortly be available on the LondonCentre.org site. Um, we're just going through a refurbishment after Christmas, as you can imagine. Uh, but that's that will be the place to go. Back when I was a kid, there used to be signs all over the place, fallout shelters. I don't see them anymore. Funnily enough, if you go into New York, there are still a couple, um, but they've been deactivated. They were deactivated mostly during the 80s um, after – and the 80s and 90s, I should say, to be accurate um, – as a result of Glasnost and Perestroika, um, um, the various limit, arms limitations talks, one of the problems in dealing with these things is that even if you do have nuclear fallout shelters, um, there aren't very many of them, and they're not going to be capable of dealing with any type of major event. They never were. They were. Uh, but basically, when I when I talk about uh, finding cover. Uh, in my guide, Base, uh, schools often have decent cellars. Churches often have decent cellars. The subway, the underground, the metro, places like that, uh, even tunnels. Um, the one thing I would say is not a car. Although a car is better than nothing, it's not very much better than nothing. But a basement, um, preferably a bathroom in a basement. Bathrooms, funnily enough, in a crisis are always a good place to go. Now, do you think people should build fallout shelters in, in their basement if they have one? I think having some sort of survival area, no matter what, because it's handy in any type of emergency, and tornadoes, floods, natural disasters can occur as well as um, man-made disasters. Uh, I'm not a proponent of digging your own fallout shelter, no, but I am a proponent of find, make, finding somewhere in the house and making it an area in which you've got enough water which is the critical element, stored, uh, so that you can survive for a while, uh, even no matter what disaster has struck. Tim, let's, can you tell the audience your background? What did you do for a living before joining the uh, London Centre? I was, uh, well, I've been a consultant for a number of years, but I spent more than 30 years in the British Army. Um, and I worked, amongst other things, on nuclear weapons, um, storage and recovery, and uh, quite a lot of counterterrorism in my background. And can you tell the audience what, what parts of the world you've been stationed in over those 30 years? Yeah, um, stationed in is interesting. I spent uh, quite a few years in Germany in, back in the days when it was East and West Germany. I was stationed in West Germany for a few years. Uh, I've deployed to uh, the Middle East, um, the Balkans twice, um, Northern Ireland, and Kosovo, and uh, some experience in Africa as well. Now, how did you get involved with the London Centre? My, so my wife 
had a, a lot of contacts and we were going to various interesting and informative talks, dinners, lunches, conferences. And I met Herb. I was introduced to Herb by my wife. And Herb London um, was an, a, a unique man, uh, incredibly intelligent, very capable and uh, very impassioned about America and keeping America safe and doing what was right. And he was the one that set up the London Centre seven or eight years ago. Sadly, we lost him a year ago, but uh, we tried to continue his mission. Um, and as I say, the aim is always to try and produce solutions to problems, present and future, by basing our ideas on facts and things that we really think will work. And where does somebody learn more about the London Centre? It's on uh, londoncentre.org. It's as simple as that. Tim Wilson, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. You're very welcome, Mike. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your life. Legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. But if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We're very privileged right now to have on our show Robert Spencer. You know, he's been on the show before. He's a very prolific writer. And his new book is The Palestinian Delusion, The Catastrophic History of the Middle East Peace Process. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you. Happy to be here. What is your book about? Obviously, we have the title, but what, what's the, the theory behind the book? Well, the idea is to show that the attempts to negotiate a settlement between Israel and the Palestinians have always failed, and to show why they've failed, why they will always fail, and what we must do instead. Well, again, why will they fail? The main reason is because of Islam. Uh, nobody in the State Department, nobody in the 
American diplomatic establishment wants to acknowledge this or has ever shown any indication of having any understanding of this. But the fact is that the uh, all of the Palestinian organizations are committed to explicitly committed to the total destruction of Israel, and they will not accept the existence of a Jewish state in any uh, shape, any size, any form. Not There's no way that they can do that because of various Islamic imperatives, most notably chapter 2, verse 191 of the Quran, which says, drive them out from where they drove you out. Now, as I show in the book, it's not actually true historically that the Muslim Arabs were driven out of the area of that is now Israel. But that is certainly a staple of the victimhood mythology that the Palestinians have constructed. And consequently, it becomes a divine command, not something that's negotiable, not something that they can agree to forego, but a divine command that they have to destroy Israel. A few months ago, when you were making the rounds on, on your latest book, I heard you on, on one of the hosts on the station. He was, I think, trying to make the point or at least saying, well, 90 percent of, of the Muslim community, they're good guys. It's just that five to 10 percent that are causing problems. Do you have any comment on that? Sure. Uh, the thing is, yeah, there are lots and lots of Muslims who are never going to wage jihad against the United States or anybody else. And uh, for that, we can all be grateful. At the same time, you look at something like the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the people who are in charge are all in favor of this violence and this genocidal incitement against Israel. It's also the same everywhere else you look. You look at the Islamic Republic of Iran, and the people in charge want war with the United States. They want antagonism with the United States. A lot of it's increasingly clear over the last few days that a lot of the people in Iran do not want that at all. But the leadership certainly does. And it's the same thing all over the Islamic world. While it may be true that the vast majority of Muslims don't have any interest in pursuing these things, there's not any organized movement among Muslims either to stop the ones who want to from doing it. You mentioned Iran. What, you know, we hear, you know, a lot of different things on some of the cable channels and so forth. What is your assessment of what was going on? What how do you feel about the assassin assassination, but the uh, the the killing of General Soleimani? Well, it was a great thing because in the first place, it showed that the United States has entered a new phase, can no longer be subject to violent intimidation and bullying, which is what has been going on for all these years. The uh, Obama administration, you may recall, when the sailors were taken by the Islamic Republic, there was a Navy patrol boat ventured off course and the Islamic Republic captured it and made the American sailors kneel blindfolded with their hands behind their backs. They were intentionally, of course, trying to humiliate the American soldiers and by extension, the United States. And Barack Obama didn't do anything but conclude the Iranian nuclear deal and shower billions upon them. Even worse, as a matter of fact, Secretary of State John Kerry actually thanked the Iranians for how nicely they had treated our sailors, which was just an appalling uh, misstep, mistake, because when you're dealing with the Iranian mullahs, you're dealing with people who only understand strength and weakness. They only deal in strength and weakness. And when they see Obama and Kerry being so conciliatory, they only see weakness. Whereas when they see Trump striking back firmly 
after the siege of the embassy in Baghdad that was engineered from Tehran, then they see that this that now there's a line at which that they really must not cross. And so Trump's actions are much more likely to bring lasting peace or at least approach toward it than anything Obama did. What do you think is and I guess it's always somewhat conjecture, but you probably have more sources than most people. What 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 do the Iranian people think right now? Well, the Iranian people, you can see the videos. They are demonstrating all over the country, and they're not just demonstrating uh, in the way that the American media would have you believe. There were there were huge funerals, uh, huge funeral observances for Soleimani. Lots of people mourning and weeping. So also there were for Kim Jong Il in uh, North Korea. Totalitarian states always do that kind of thing. It actually manifests their fundamental insecurity that they have to have these extravagant displays of mourning, forcing their people to go along with this or on pain of punishment, imprisonment, job loss, uh, all sorts of things, unless they go into these uh, elaborate displays of mourning. But we've seen the real Iran and the real sentiments of the people over the last few days when the uh, people are demonstrating against the regime all over the country and chanting, we don't want the Islamic Republic, and chanting that the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps is their ISIS. It's funny because the American media is being more positive toward the Islamic Republic of Iran than the Iranian people themselves right now. Now, I, I know some people are going to say, well, you're just partisan. You're, you're making this stuff up. I mean, Soleimani was a great, beloved figure. You just, you're just taking a few outtakes for a couple of demonstrations on the other side. Well, we can see. Uh, we can test that theory, and we will be testing it over the next few days uh, and over the, in, the, in the near future as well. Whether the Islamic Republic falls, which is a very real possibility, or whether it only sustains itself in power by killing many of its own citizens. You may note also that thousands of Iranians have already been killed, and yet the demonstrators are still out there on the streets, which kind of belies the idea that I'm just exaggerating the effect here. The reality is that the Iranian people have already demonstrated that they don't want the Islamic Republic and are willing to take any risk in order to get rid of it. Changing the subject slightly, we have some friends in Lebanon. What's Hezbollah and what are they doing right now? I tell you, I have a good friend in Lebanon myself who was just recently meeting, uh, is the mayor of a town in Lebanon, and was just recently meeting with a Hezbollah commander. And the Hezbollah commander told him, we haven't been paid in months, which is an indication that Trump's sanctions are working and that the uh, jihad terror groups that the Iranian regime bankrolls are feeling the pinch. How much of the whatever that number was, 150 billion, how much of that was that used to, to fund terrorists? Oh, the lion's share of it, the great majority of it, because we know that from the Iranian people themselves, because another some of the other things that have been chanting are about how they don't care about Lebanon. They don't care about Hezbollah. They don't care about the Palestinians. They care about their own people. And the Iranian regime doesn't care about their own people. They only care about funding these terror groups. And so the Iranian people know that where this money went, and they don't like it. Let me ask you something, getting back to your book. Is there a chance for peace in the Middle East between Israel and its neighbors? No, not really. They're the As long as there are people who believe in the Quran, believe that Muhammad is a prophet, then there will be people who believe that Israel must be destroyed. 
because any land that once belongs to Islam belongs by right to Islam forever. And that is because of that divine command I mentioned, drive them out from where they drove you out. The problem cannot be solved. The problem can, however, be managed. And that can only be done by a position of strength, because here again, you're talking about people who understand strength and weakness primarily. And so if Israel stands strong and does not uh, any longer make concessions on the false idea that giving land will bring peace, the land for peace notion has never worked and never will work. Uh, If Israel stands strong and adjusts some of the missteps that it has made over the last few decades in dealing with this problem, as I detail in the book, one of the most notable ones being admitting the acknowledging the existence of a Palestinian people in the first place when there never has been such a people and is not now, uh, then they have a chance to survive on an indefinite basis, but only um, by uh, discarding some of the fantasies that are prevailing all over the place today. Robert, where can people where can they get your book and where can they find more about your organization, Jihad Watch? Yeah, it's at jihadwatch.org. That's J-I-H-A-D-watch.org. Updated many times daily with news and commentary about the jihad activity in the United States and everywhere else. And uh, the book is at Amazon.com, at BarnesandNoble.com. Any self-respecting bookstore will have it as well. And I'm on Twitter at JihadWatchRF. Okay, again, the name of the latest book, The Palestinian Delusion, the catastrophic history of the Middle East peace process. Robert Spencer, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Nick, you know, as we mentioned earlier on the show, you were raised in Jordan, whatever. What are your comments about Robert Spencer? Um, I've followed his work for many years now. I'm very familiar with his work. Uh, Unfortunately, I haven't read his books, but I've watched many of his lectures, and he strikes me as one of a few people that I see in here in the United States who really understand most of, I wouldn't say, you know, all the issues, but for the most part, he understands the issues from a perspective of a native speaker, meaning had he, he doesn't speak, you know, Arabic, he's an, he's an English-speaking native. However, he many, due to translation and the cultural differences, don't really understand uh, the ideology, the religion, and some of the concepts and the beliefs of the people like he does. So he strikes me, and, I'm, you know, that's why I followed his work for, for many years, that somebody who genuinely understands as if he was born and raised there speaking the language, and that's very impressive. He has uh, you know, a pessimistic view of the future, I guess. He doesn't think there's going to be peace in the Middle East between Israel and the Muslim states. No, unfortunately, I, I agree, and it breaks my heart to say that because I would love to stay hopeful uh, for peace as uh, myself, my family, and many of the people that I grew up with and I know would love to see peace. However, uh, his conclusion was right. Unfortunately, what started as a political dispute, just like many parts of the world, you know, all, many countries, many areas, you know, they have disputes over borders, over state, over nationality, whatever the case may be. And for the most part, we've seen... Uh, people come, came to a resolution, except for this particular uh, conflict. Um, the issue is what started as a political dispute, political conflict that could have been re- you know, resolved politically, was hijacked by a religious, larger, uh, in a larger context by a, l- a religious dispute that dates back to 1,400 years between Islam and, and the treatment of the Jews. So... Uh, unfortunately, as hopeful I was left, would love to stay, uh, um, I agree with him on the conclusion that as long as we have what we have today, uh, if that doesn't change ideologically speaking, uh, I, I don't see 
a decent resolution or, or peace in the near future, unfortunately. What is the difference between the, the government, Jordan, and, and let's say some of the other countries, Syria, obviously Iran right now? What's the difference between the government of Jordan and those other countries? You can say, for the most part, the government of Jordan is more on the moderate side. But I'm, you know, I'm just going to go on the record and say it. Even the moderate states, what people don't realize, even the moderate states in the Middle East, or let's say the, moder- mo- the moderate Muslim-majority states, um, they stay basically silent on the religious issues, and they enable, they allow uh, the clerics and the religious institutions to proceed. So even though Jordan had signed, and they have a peace with Israel, they did not go to the next step of implementing the peace between and their institutions, meaning, um, you know, the hatred and, 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 and the propaganda and, and, and the rhetoric that still exists in Jordan itself. So even though they have peace, we have peace between Israel and Jordan, there's diplomatic relationships. Um, I can't speak, speak on behalf of the Israeli people, but I've, you know, I've watched a lot of them and I have many actually uh, Jewish-Israeli friends in Tel Aviv who you know share very moderate and, and respectful opinions. However, on the other side, it's lacking. You know, it's still taboo in Jordan to come out and say, "Yes, I'm friends with the Israelis. I'm uh, I'm for the peace." Even though the government had signed the peace uh, agreement years ago, more than a few decades now. However, the most for the most part, many of the people have not made that leap. Let me ask you, what is it like for a Christian living in Jordan? Much better than anywhere else in that region. I mean, I grew up uh, Christian in Jordan. Uh, my parents were Palestinian Christian refugees, my grandparents. Um, we felt relatively safe from the government and the people. People were very friendly, very nice. But I lived in a city. I lived in a capital, which is more diverse and it's more open to Western culture than other parts of the uh, of the country. So... Uh, and in Jordan itself, in, in the northern part of Jordan and in the southern part, there's a few still small villages that are predominantly Christian. So that helps where you have ethnically Jordan, ethnic Jordanians who are Christians that, you know, for, for many, many years, for hundreds of years, many centuries, I meant to say. Uh, so that, that helps to balance and, you know, give it a little bit more moderation. Uh, and also because because Jordan took in refugees from Iraq, from Syria, from Lebanon, many of those refugees were Christians as well. So you still have, uh, they're exposed, the population is exposed, and they live next door to Christians, which is helpful, you know, uh, in reaching an understanding and, and, and living in peace with the neighbors, you know. May I ask a question? Um, I think the Palestinian Christians are people that have been completely forgotten about. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I agree. And I, that's, that's always kind of caught my attention and, and bothered me a little bit because we're not even in a discussion. So the, the frame is always, the discussion is always framed um, the Jewish state and the Muslim Arabic state. However, and even as a Palestinian Christian uh, originally, um, the sad part about that region is people don't realize that even the Palestinians themselves are not Arabic people. Some of them are. But also the Palestinian people are very diverse. You know, some of them used to be Jewish at some point. Uh, if you go back to the Ottoman uh, rule, they used to go to some villages, what used to be Jewish villages, and convert people into Islam. And now these people are Muslim Palestinians, who some of them actually have uh, Jewish blood. And I've seen some research from uh, University of Haifa 
a Jewish professor did a research on this particular issue where he went to Hebron and did genetic studies and DNA studies and found that many of the Muslim Arabs who think they are Muslim Arabs are ethnically Jewish originally. So history is very complicated, you know, who, you know, what a Palestinian means. It just means somebody from that region because it went by the name of Palestine for, for a long time. Um, but the people are very diverse, and especially the Christians. You know, the Christians in Palestine and in Israel and the Holy Land and whatever, let's be politically correct, and I'm going to give it every single name in the book, the <laughs> Middle East, the Holy Land, Israel, Palestine, West Bank, whatever uh, you want to call it. These people live there. I mean, if you look at the churches we've had, they've been there from early uh, time after, you know, once the Christians started building the Christian churches. Uh, so the presence of that community predates. It's been there for a couple of thousand years now. Um, or whether they're Arab or not, that's that's the, the issue now. But, they're, you know, we may speak Arabic, and they call it you know, an Arab region. However, the Middle East is the ancient Byzantine Empire, Eastern Roman Empire, the old Christian world, and I think people sometimes forget that. You know, you know I think we're going to have a discussion about the Crusades in the next few weeks, and of course, that's one of the things. You know, the the, the Muslims took the land from the Christians back Correct. in the Middle East, going way back when you know before the Crusades, and the Crusades was an attempt to take those lands back for Christianity. So we're going to have a hopefully a pretty good discussion about that issue. Meanwhile, I think we're running out of time right now, so oh, no. David Kincaid is telling us to go home. So listen, to ask the lawyer next week at the same time. Bye bye, everybody. It was a pleasure. Goodbye. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Connors and Sullivan, Attorneys at Law, PLLC.